This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We now live in a world of nonstop angst. And for parents, students, teachers, and administrators, those concerns will carry on into what will be a strange and challenging school year. I'm Andrew Thien, and this is Beat Check with the Oregonian. Up next, Portland Public Schools reporter Eder Campozano talks about the state's largest school district's reopening plan and what it means for everyone involved. We talked about how everyone is faring mentally and how the ongoing health crisis will disproportionately affect students of color academically. We also talked about how his reporting tactics have changed during the pandemic and why Portland is seeking a $1 billion bond this fall. We also discussed how and why the district is suddenly agreeing to rename Wilson High School and potentially other public schools in the wake of national protests surrounding racism in America. In the second half of the show, reporter and producer Ryan Wen joined us to talk about his reporting on that issue. Here's our conversation. Edder Camposano, thanks so much for taking time to talk to us today. Yeah, for sure. We are still a ways out from school starting, but school seems to be on everyone's mind. It's a topic that comes up in every press conference about COVID-19. And I know something you've been reporting on uh, for weeks now. What's the outlook for Oregon's largest school district this fall? Remind us. So just over the most recent weekend, Portland Public Schools put out its sort of tentative plan. And, you know, I I, I wish that there was a, a way for me to bold underline italicize and highlight the word tentative um, <laughs> just because there is so much that changes day to day when it comes to the outlook on what infection rates look like, even like the changing science of what we believe and how it transmits, who's vulnerable, who can carry it, yada, yada, yada. Um, but, you know, the, the tentative plan hinges on public health experts basically giving the district the go ahead to say, yes, we can have students return for in-person instruction. And the in-person instruction component would uh, be limited to two days per week. So no matter what grade in Portland Public Schools your children are in, they would be in class only two days per week. Uh, From pre-kindergarten to eighth grade, they'd be split into two cohorts, an A and a B per se, uh, one of whom physically attends class Monday, Tuesday, Wednesdays, the schools close so that teachers can evaluate their plans, get ready for the next cohort, and so that the schools can also go into a kind of deep cleaning mode. And the second cohort goes in uh, Thursday, Friday. And so when half of the kids are the half of the kids who aren't in physically in the classroom will be following along virtually. Uh, so it'll be a lot of what parents saw 
in distance learning back in, uh, you know, a, a few months ago before school let out, but with a bit more, I guess, live sort of uh, teaching by the instructors who will be in the classroom with, with, you know, the other half of the cohort. So that's sort of like the grander, larger look at what the district is doing, which is what a few other districts across the state are doing, and adheres to the guidelines that the education department, right, laid out last month mm-hmm. to say, you know, you can only have as many kids inside a physical classroom as you can keep uh, like 35 square feet apart, which works out to just under, you know, six feet in each direction. Um, and, you know, the the school board just recently actually heard from the principal at Benson High that, you know, he thinks that he's basically going to be limited to having seven to 10 kids in a classroom at a given time and having like hallways be one way in order to make sure that nobody can, you know, like take in uh, too much air at the same time, basically. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that this is all tentative. Life is all tentative right now, essentially. <laughs> um, things could change. But this is a big burden for everyone involved, um, teachers, staff, uh, students. Um, what are you hearing from, I guess, let's start with parents and families. I mean, what have you heard about how they're feeling about this plan? Because it, uh, it is not back to normal by any stretch of the imagination. Parents have, uh, you know, just uh, not even a handful. I would say, you know, armfuls and armfuls of considerations that they have to make. Because for those who can and will still work remotely, just like everyone in our newsroom, right, for Mm -hmm. example, is working remotely until at least the end of the calendar year. Um, Folks in that position tend to tell me, well, you know, I have a limited capacity to teach my kids or to monitor their learning when I'm working. So it's going to be nice if they can return for at least two days. Parents who don't have that luxury of being able to work at home have the question of childcare on their minds, right? So great if my kid can go back to school for two days a week, but what am I doing for the other three? Do I do 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 I send my child to childcare, which in some respects would diminish my earning capacity because now I'm paying to have someone watch my kid? Right. Do I go in on a babysitter with a bunch of other parents? Um, you know, do, do I go another route? It's, those are kind of the main considerations. And in terms of, you know, what, what parents are thinking is, you know, what, what am I going to do in terms of those three days that my kid is not in school? Not to mention the fact that most of them, I don't think I've heard from a single parent who has a rosy outlook on what distance learning did for their kid. Um, so that's another thing, you know, for the three days that the, that my child is not in school, are they going to be, you know, getting any sort of, uh, or how effective is that actual learning going to be? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because we already have so many gaps in our education system um, based on, you know, economic um, realities that families face. Um, maybe they don't have the support um, or the ability. Um, maybe they're starting in uh, behind when they get to a certain grade level. Um, how, how concerned are you and people in the education world that this is only going to be exacerbated by this crisis? Well, whenever I uh, speak to or attend a virtual news conference with you know state education officials, 
or local leaders in Portland Public Schools, they, they, they say that they have seen, um, you know, the just, just as in every other aspect of, of the pandemic, you know, the, the demographics hardest hit are Black and Native students and migrant students. Um, you know, I interviewed uh, a woman who has kids at Scott Elementary, right? And she told me when I was doing this kind of series on, on you know, what migrant parents mm. face, that, you know, it's, it's been nice to have her kids occupied for much of the day, uh, you know, with distance learning, but it's not, it doesn't, even to her, it doesn't quite feel the same as having her children in a physical physical school building. Um, and, you know, like her, her older daughter who is about to become a middle schooler, like had trouble sort of focusing and making sure that she was, you know, on, on the ball basically. And she was afraid that that, that's sort of going to continue. Um, especially as she's entering a new school environment, right? Like middle school is a remarkably different experience than elementary school. And kids are going to have to learn to adjust uh, to new school environments like that, whether they're entering middle school or high school, when so much else is up in the air. And socialization is usually a term that, you know, I, I've got two kids who are in daycare. You know, that's something we talk about mm -hmm. it, important for for small kids to be around other kids. But it's really important as well for for kids of all ages to be surrounded by peers. And like you said, learning to navigate um you know, life uh, in a public school environment, um, and that's gone effectively. Yeah, you know, the teacher that I spoke with at the beginning of the, or not even in the beginning, I think it was uh, a couple of months into the pandemic, were telling me that they really, they the first few weeks of school are when they really build bonds with their students. Um, and they felt that pivoting to distance learning after they had already um, established those bonds was difficult enough and they have no idea what it's going to be like to establish relationships with kids that they don't even know going into a new semester and, you know, just getting them ready to learn with those connections. Yeah. I'm, you know, for transparency, I'm married to a high school teacher and, um, you know, it, it's interesting that kids, while they're, you know, so digitally savvy and so connected, um, it is not something that they're used to in terms of connecting with adults <laughs> digitally, right? Um, it, it, that in-person stuff mm -hmm. is, is very important. It's critical. Yeah. Um, you mentioned connecting to both migrant families and other, um, other students that you've chatted with. I, I thought maybe we could go behind the, the curtain a little bit at her and just talk about how your job has changed during this pandemic. H how do you get in touch with students and families? Um, describe what that process is like and how that's changed uh, through through this pandemic. Right. Well, I think my experience as a reporter has pretty much mirrored what uh, a lot of these, like what a lot of families have had to adjust to when it comes to distance learning, right? I obviously can't just walk up to a school campus when there's a story breaking and just start asking questions, right? I could, but nobody's going to be mm -hmm. on campus. So what 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 I've had to do, um, and what I found really great reception in, is sending out surveys, basically. Um, you know, people are hungry for information, but they're also really interested in, in talking and relaying their experiences 
you know, when everything's just kind of crazy. And so, for example, I did a series on high school seniors and how their lives were upended due to the pandemic. And I, I mean, I simply just pulled Facebook, put out a Google survey and asked like, hey, if you're interested in speaking to me about this experience, please let me know. And I got a wealth of responses from kids who were like, yes, please. I would love to talk to you about how this has impacted me. Um, I had a few sort of, I mean, I kind of wanted to take a quote unquote breakfast club approach to find kids in different situations and different interests. So I reached out to the advisor for the robotics club at Grant High School. He put me in touch with a student, uh, somebody from this kind of like incubator for, for student leadership reached out to me and said, hey, would you like to speak to one of our students about something? He's, he's going to be graduating. And I jumped on that and said, yes, please, I would love to speak to a student out in East Portland. Um, and then curiously enough, you know, in the call out for just any student who wanted to share their experiences, uh, both Brooke Herbert and I, one of our videographers, uh, got connected to this teenager, uh, this high school senior out in Tigard. Um, who has this like close knit group of friends um, who we ended up basically chronicling the last four months of her senior year through the lens of what it's like to like have this group of seven besties that you do everything together with. And when school completely shuts down, your prom's gone, your graduation is up in the air. Here's how they met in a parking lot. Right. And like danced to music from their cars (laughs) and held like an in-person graduation ceremony for each other where they got together with their caps and gowns on and talked about their favorite teachers and then also like professed their friendship for each other like their feelings of friendship for each other and so those are some of like the smaller moments that we've been able to chronicle through all of this and just like the ways that really reaching out to people digitally for me has had to basically take the place of walking up to school buildings attending meetings or going to festivals and events and just asking people what's going on what are you looking forward to yeah you've always centered students in your coverage in a really great way i feel like but um do you do you think that this is has it been almost easier in some ways to connect um or is it just different well i would say it's just it's just different yeah um you know i when when i'm just kind of looking for a story if uh you know for example if i if i just want to uh, profile a student or find somebody interesting to talk to. I like to take a fl- like a kind of a fly on the wall approach. Uh, just show up to an event and just tell everybody like, "Hey, I'm I'm just here to observe. By all means, pretend I'm not here." And then from there, just kind of uh, seek out people who I think would be interesting to speak to. Uh, the difference in the last few months is that I've really had to rely on my subjects being a bit more proactive in reaching out to me, um, which you know, ha- has gotten me stories that I probably wouldn't have gotten before. Uh, but yeah, it's also kind of presented a different dynamic in the way that I do my work. Let's take a break and come back and talk more with Edder Camposano. Well, we're back uh, with Edder Camposano talking about Portland Public Schools. And uh, we were talking about the COVID-19 crisis and how that's affected schools. But there's obviously this other seismic story sweeping the nation, protests and and racial injustice movements. Um, you've done a lot of reporting at her, uh, on students at Wilson High School and Black students in particular, who, you know, were calling for that school to be renamed uh, months ago, right? 
Yes, and actually the sort of efforts to find a new namesake for Wilson High School, I in speaking to uh, the leadership at the Black Student Union there, they were referring to efforts that were started like five years ago mm. by a teacher. So it, it has been a conversation that's been long in the making. And in fact, when I was speaking to Aslan Newson for that story, she mentioned that for the last year, the club has been trying to petition uh, school leadership to consider a name change. And it was really basically like the toppling of the Jefferson, the Thomas Jefferson statue at Jefferson High that led them to think there's a movement behind this. It seems like we can go even further. And instead of simply asking for the school to be named after a different famous Wilson, let's just go for a wholesale renaming of the school and find someone better suited to our ideals that, you know, we want the namesake to reflect. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Jefferson High School, which, um, you know, that statue coming down was, you know, ultimately national news. Uh, This didn't make the list of schools in your reporting, at least, that are currently being considered for renaming. What's the status of of Jeff? Um, Is that school... Uh, also under consideration for potential renaming? So it is interesting to me that there wasn't, I, I haven't seen any large scale petition or like official conduits for for, for that name change to happen. Um, and I actually, so I was on furlough last week and the week before that is when I kind of got a, uh, a, a short, not one-on-one, it was like four-on-one, right? With with a bunch of administrators and the school board chair at Portland Public Schools over the the coming bond, right? That they're proposing about $1.1 billion to extensively renovate Jefferson High School, right? That's the, that's the one school that's going to be part of that effort. And I asked if, you know, given the movement behind these name changes nationwide, this kind of out, outcry against Thomas Jefferson in particular and the toppling of the statue, if the district goes forward, you know, gets the bond approved and there are extensive renovations to Jefferson High School, is a name change in the mix. And I, the, the response that I got at that time, uh, I think three weeks before listeners hear this podcast was, you know, well, it, our process for changing school names is a community-driven approach and we want to make sure that the community's thoughts are reflected and that we're basically doing what the community wants. Fast forward two weeks, and the superintendent has basically commissioned uh, like a, a fast track process to rename schools within a year. And Jefferson is not on that, like on the short list of schools for consideration on that. And I mean, I, I'm willing to wager, and this is me speculating now, that because that school is set up for potential like renovations, that that seems like just really good timing to say, well, when we do all this work to the to the exteriors and and, and rebuild this, you know, mass portion, portions of the school, yeah, it, it, it's a perfect time to, you know, change the lettering. If we rename it, maybe put a new statue out in front and, you know, go through the process then. So I think it's a timing thing for that building more than anything. And every 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 other school on the short list has got you know it's has got vociferous support for a renaming. This might be a good time to take kind of a bigger step back and and also bring in uh, uh, 
our reporter and and producer Ryan Wen, who who did some reporting on on this topic as well. I guess you know I know this is a broader national movement, but like, what do high school students, particularly students of color, think when they see the name Woodrow Wilson or um, Thomas Jefferson or James Madison uh, on on their buildings? I guess what does that mean to to students of color? One of the most interesting things that I was told when doing the reporting for this story was from a teacher at Wilson High School who, um, Nabila Mohammed, who advises the school's Black Student Union and the Muslim Student Union. And the, the feeling that she sort of got from students was that they don't feel represented in their school. When their students chant Wilson, Wilson at their high school football games, they don't really feel comfortable doing that. They don't really feel like this is something that they should be proud of. They feel really disconnected from their school. One of the moments that I sort of reported in that story was about how when the Muslim Student Union at Wilson was designing a new shirt for um, the upcoming school year this spring, they were really torn on whether to include the name of their school. Well, they weren't really torn. They didn't really want to include the name of their Mm -hmm. school in the end. Um, They were discussing where they could hide it on the design, maybe put it on somewhere on the back, maybe just include the acronym WHS, maybe hide it in the sleeve. And they ultimately came to the conclusion to not put it on their shirt at all. And I just think that sort of feeling of disconnect is is telling here. And of course, like when students were talking about this, they were pointing to the history of racism from Wilson like he was an ally of the Ku Klux Klan. He was instituting segregation in federal government agencies. And they were tr- sort of using that knowledge that they were actually discussing in their classes to try and really spark this change. And yeah, they have, they've been, this is something that's sort of been slowly building for a couple of years, as Editor said. Yeah. And then it, it built and, and ultimately moved to the point that, um, you know, spring 2021, as, as Edder reported, um, Wilson is going to have a new name. Yeah. I mean, one of the kind of like behind the scenes things that, you know, my, my editor, Betsy Hammond and I were talking about when it comes to, to Wilson, right. Is both of us were sort of not taken aback necessarily, but just like, Oh, Wilson, wasn't he like the progressive president who presided over the country during world war one, yada, yada, yada. Right. Um, League of nations guy. Uh, that's what we learned in school in, you know, my AP history mm-hmm. class in high school when I, by the time that I graduated in 2005, it was like, oh yeah, Woodrow Wilson, he was one of the okay guys. And you don't, you don't hear about often, at least us in the older set, you know, yeah, the, his affiliations and like for, for, with the Ku Klux Klan, his um, screening of birth of a nation at the White House, right? Which is now, you know, now considered to be like that, this kind of like emblem of, the, the South, once again, like flexing and saying, or white Southerners flexing and saying like, yeah, we're still here and we're still racist yeah. as heck. So explicitly you know. racist film, right. That, that, um, is, yeah. you know, notorious. Um, it's, and, and, you know, schools, uh, you know, it's, you think of it lo- largely, maybe I just think of it this way as the school spirit as being like a sports related thing. Right. But it's hard to have uh, school spirit for a, a school that that name um, conjures, you know, racist connections. I guess that's the bigger story here. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I, and I will say, and, uh, you know, 
Ryan, I, I don't know how much you heard students talk about this when you were doing your interviews for this story, but you know, in my conversations with with parents and students, one of the sort of themes that we keep coming back to is, well, what do some of the namesakes of this school have to like, and really any school in the area have to do with Portland or Oregon, right? Like, what connection do any of these men? have with the local area. I mean, the only president that's really had any really close ties to Oregon is Herbert Hoover. I don't think anybody wants a school named after him. Um, Are you talking to a Hoover Elementary alum here at her <laughs> down in Medford, Oregon? <laughs> but uh, that seems to be kind of the consensus among some of the folks that I talked to and saying, like, if we are going to reconsider the names of these schools, shouldn't it be like people who are important to this community and who also have contributed in some meaningful way to to, to Portland proper. Uh, we touched on earlier the fact that um, Portland public schools are once again coming back with um, with a sizable bonds um, proposal uh, on on the ballot in November, um, and Jefferson, you know, which is this. A uh, really old facility, right? That um, in desperate need of of attention um, uh, would be the centerpiece. That's got to be something that has community members feeling uh, excited. I would imagine, right, Edder? Yeah, I mean, back in January or like ten years ago, um, <laughs> you know, the the district had sort of outlined its plan to go out for another big bond and this time roll in the remaining three high schools that have not seen modernization plans. And those are uh, Cleveland, Wilson, and Jefferson. Um, and the conversations around Jefferson specifically uh, were, were I don't want to say less, um, sort of like school and education focused than the other two because they were just as much. But there was a larger community conversation about what that building meant means to the Alberta neighborhood, right? It's this cultural institution in a historically black neighborhood in the city that the community itself, neighbors and people who had kids who had gone to Jefferson, um, really stepping up to say, hey, we really want this to be like a meeting spot um, and kind of a community area uh, because of its like its history and because of what it's long meant to, to people who live in the area. Mm. And um, that, I guess, what does that translate to um, in the proposals that the district is putting forward? What, it, what would the new Jeff uh, or whatever it may be called look like? So the proposal has actually, um, the proposal for Jefferson specifically is the only one that the district is moving forward with now. So instead of redoing Cleveland and Wilson, those have been kind of sidelined for a future bond and the district wants to focus specifically on Jefferson and the renovation plans for Jefferson moving forward are the same as they were in January. The difference is that district officials have added another $60 million to sort of kind of renovate, but also add services to schools within uh, neighborhoods that Jefferson uh, is in to create a, a center for black student excellence, just because the, the, the district has long known that, you know, it, it falls short in outcomes for, for black children, right? Um, last year in January, the state secretary of state's office released this wide ranging report that showed that Portland public schools consistently, you know, 
basically fails at um, educating children of color, specifically black, black children. And only something like that year, 19% of black third graders were reading at grade level. And so the district and the school board have made this pledge to drastically boost academic achievement for, for, for those students. And this Center for Black Student Excellence is just one step in, in accomplishing, right? And, and, and it's done by uh, basically just pumping money and resources into an underserved student group to make sure that they succeed and have the same opportunities as their, as their peers. So Edder, just uh, closing out, um, I guess, just, just in addition to a global pandemic and um, nationwide attention being paid to racial injustice uh, in this country, what else are you tracking uh, related to the school's beat? Portland Public Schools has a tentative start date for students to go online, at least, and start adjusting to their new reality on September 2nd. Um, there's about five to six weeks between now and then, and I'm sure that I'll be up to my eyeballs, um, you know, hearing from parents what they want a school year to look like, what their concerns for a school year look like, teachers, the, the district is about to enter contract negotiations with the union in terms of safe working conditions for its educators. Um, so that'll be something I'm, I'll be keeping an eye on. Um, and then, you know, as always, just the question of how these circumstances affect some of the most vulnerable families, right? And again, it always comes back to uh, how is all of this affecting Black and Latino and Indigenous students? Um, you know, that's, there's just no shortage of things to watch out for in the coming months. Well, we thank you so much for your reporting, for keeping tabs on all this and, and for keeping us all informed. Thanks so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm about to dive back into that bursting inbox. And Ryan Wen, thanks so much for your reporting from the students at Wilson and other schools. Really appreciate it. You too. Thanks for listening to Beat Check with the Oregonian. If you like the show, leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It helps others find the program. Or consider supporting the show directly by subscribing to Oregon Live. You can do that at OregonLive.com slash pod support. Until next time.